This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. America is many things to many people. Many things to many people. To mother and her family, it's church on Sunday morning. It's all races, creeds, and religions. Church on Sunday morning. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes. I am your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed resident, activist, believer, all of that good stuff. And actually, right now, we have a very special episode. It is the kickoff to a brand new series called White Nation Under God, White Nation Under God. We're going to be talking all things white Christian nationalism. In this first episode, I want to start with a story from my own personal experience. This is from 2015, 2016, somewhere around there. I was living in Jackson, Mississippi, finishing up seminary, and I remember coming out of church one Sunday morning. This is an intentionally multiracial church, uh, very theologically conservative in, in all kinds of ways. And I remember remember walking out into the parking lot after service one morning, and it was during some sort of local referendum. There was, there was something up for a vote, and there was a Democratic position on the issue and a Republican issue. A Republican position on the issue. And I remember walking out into the parking lot and seeing a car with a bumper sticker in support of the Republican position on the issue. And in that moment, it struck me. And I said to the folks around me, I said, you know what? There are going to be hundreds of people who pass right by this bumper sticker supporting the Republican position. No one's going to say anything. No one's going to bat an eyelash. And if However, that person had a bumper sticker with the Repo the Democratic position on there. Well, you could expect someone to pull you aside, grab you by the lapels and say, hey, let me explain to you what it means to be a Christian. The implication being clearly you had no idea what real Christianity was if you supported a democratic position on just about anything. Now, nobody said that explicitly, but that was clearly the presumption, clearly the culture where it was far more acceptable uh, in these Christian spaces to be in support of the Republican Party than anything in the Democratic Party. Now, this is also about the time of the 2016 presidential election cycle. And remember that from June 2015, that's when Trump first announced his candidacy for the nomination for the Republican Party candidate. And so remember, there was two dozen or so 
potential nominees. And we saw over the course of a year, that list get whittled down and down and down, and eventually Trump become the nominee. All the while, we're seeing white evangelical support for this man increase. And I remember in the primary season, uh, posting something on social media, mildly critical of something Trump said or did. I can't remember the exact issue. And I know it was mild because back then I I wasn't nearly as forthright as I am now on these issues. And yet and still, someone at my church went to the elders and said and, and talked to them about this post and said it was out of line. And their whole thing was, I was an intern at the church at the time, and they, he was basically saying, get your intern in line. And this was surprising to me because, one, he didn't come directly to me, uh, didn't leave a comment on the original post, didn't send me a direct message, didn't contact me personally or anything like that, went directly to the elder. So my bosses basically, and said, uh, your employee is doing something that's that's out of line with what you stand for or represent. Mind you, I didn't hear anybody talking about uh, folks who were posting things in support of the Republican position, but I digress. Um, but to this person, it had risen to the level of bringing disrepute on the church, that I wasn't 100% in support of the Republican Party or uh, this potential nominee. And that was one instance among many that honestly kind of surprised me, um, kind of uh, left me grasping for an explanation. You see, by this point, I had been speaking, writing, teaching publicly about race and racism, particularly in the church, for several years now. And I thought I had seen pretty much everything they could throw throw at me, right? I had heard the comments. I had seen the stuff online. I had uh, had the long conversations, these heart-to-heart talks about it, right? I'd been called names, all of these things. And I thought that, okay, I've got the basic landscape and everything now is just variations on a theme. I was wrong. I thought I had seen most of what folks had to throw at me when I was talking strictly about racism. But when I talked about race and politics, oh, wow, that was a whole different level. I was not prepared for the vitriol, uh, the anger, uh, the rage in some cases that it brought out in people. And I'm talking about my personal experience, let alone online and what we saw nationally. And I couldn't understand it and I couldn't grasp it. I would, I just, it, it seemed self-evident to me that some of the things these folks were saying or the policies they were supporting were going to be uh, detrimental for racial justice, but of course, other issues from uh, gender and, and class and um, folks who were incarcerated, all kinds of issues. But I couldn't quite wrap my head around why so many Christians, many of whom I, I knew quite well and personally, would react so strongly to any little indication that you might not support the Republican Party. Until I found this framework called white Christian nationalism. White Christian nationalism for me was the framework that allowed me to start to understand why race, religion, and politics was so volatile. 
and all these other issues as well, from patriarchy to immigration to uh, social support systems, you name it. It was so helpful to me when I learned that term, and then I started to learn more about the ideology because it finally put under sort of one umbrella or one idea everything that I had been experiencing but couldn't really put a name to. It had some coherence. It had some internal logic. It was white Christian nationalism. And that's what this series is about. White Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to democracy and the witness of the church in the United States. I've said it before, and I will keep saying it. What this series is about is to help us understand why white Christian nationalism is so pernicious, why it is such a threat to democracy and the church in the U.S. And so let me give you an overview of this series. I'm doing the first episode, but there are several more. And the purpose of of all of them is this. White Nation Under God is a podcast miniseries that explores white Christian nationalism, the beliefs that characterize it, the actions it leads to, and what must be done about it. So in this series, I'm going to interview experts on white Christian nationalism who will equip you to understand this ideology and take action to preserve democracy and to represent religion in a way that promotes liberty and justice for all. I'm so excited about the guests that we have in this series, White Nation Under God. I'm doing this first one, and it's simply, what is white Christian nationalism? I'll give you an overview, a definition I find helpful, some characteristics of it, and even a brief history because this isn't new. The second episode is called How White Christian Nationalism Threatens Democracy, and that's with two sociologists, Dr. Philip Gorski and Dr. Samuel Perry. They're going to talk to us about the political dimensions of white Christian nationalism. In the third episode, it's called White Christian Nationalism and the January 6th, 2021 Insurrection. We're going to be hearing from Andrew Seidel. He is a lawyer. He has written several books on religious freedom, and he is going to talk about how white Christian nationalism showed up in particular at on January 6th, this attempted insurrection, but also what the precursors were, because January 6th was just one, uh, the most violent and public one, of several similar events leading up to it. In the fourth episode, we're going to talk about what we can do about white Christian nationalism. That episode is called How Christians Can Resist White Christian Nationalism. It's with Amanda Tyler. She is executive director of the BJC, and they've been working on uh, fighting against white Christian nationalism for a long, long time, and that'll help us know what to do about it. And then lastly, we get personal. I interview my friend Chuck Armstrong, who used to work for conservative talk radio, sort of in the belly of the beast, about how white Christian nationalism, nationalist ideas, or at least their their sort of policy and political program, how that came about, how he was deep in it, and how he extricated himself from it. So all those different episodes, we're going to continue with this one. What is white Christian nationalism?
What I love about this, what you're going to love about this is that in every single episode, I ask my guest how they explain or how they define white Christian nationalism. I do that because I think each definition has a different nuance and brings out a different aspect of white Christian nationalism that we need to understand. And so I've come up with a definition that I find useful, that other people have seemed to find useful, and it's this. What is white Christian nationalism? It's an ethno-cultural ideology that uses Christian symbolism to create a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. White Christian nationalism is an ethnocultural ideology that uses Christian symbolism to create a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. So what I think is critical about this definition, um, inspired by Andrew Seidel, uh, is number one, it's an ethnocultural ideology. It has to do with ethnicity and culture or race and culture. It's an ideology. This has much more to do with social and political beliefs than purely theological beliefs. And here's the critical part in this definition. A lot of people say, or white Christian nationalism is not Christianity. I understand that, and I'll address that in more detail in a moment. But in this definition, I say it uses Christian symbolism to create a permission structure for essentially its political program. And I think that's critical because you'll see Christian symbols from the Bible to the cross to prayers in Jesus' name and many more. Why? Because it gives a divine permission, a divine sanction to what they're doing. They're on a holy crusade in their minds. Um, they view themselves as promoting genuine Christian principles as they understand it. So it creates this permission structure. They they are allowed to do these things as good Christians, as part of what it means to be a good Christian. And I think that's important for us to understand. But ultimately, it's about political power and social control. I should also say about white Christian nationalism, and some of our guests will bring this up, it's not a binary it's not you You fully are white Christian nationalist or you fully are not white Christian nationalist. Rather, it is a spectrum. And people can hold these beliefs that constitute white Christian nationalism to varying degrees. And so we have to be discerning. Let's not lump everybody in one size or two size fits all boxes about white Christian nationalism. Uh, there's nuances to this thing. There's levels to this thing, which is precisely why we need this series. So what I find helpful, in addition to definitions, is how does white Christian nationalism show up? What are the cultural artifacts that we might be able to see so that we know white Christian nationalism literally when we see it. How does it show up in everyday life? Well, it's different things. Have you ever seen a pulpit with an American flag in one corner? It's a good indication that they are conflating God and country in very unhelpful ways. Um, you can see it in these massive celebrations of the 4th of July at churches. 
and it's celebrated as an almost liturgical holiday, like part of the church calendar as, as Easter or Christmas would be. You can see it in uh, their beliefs, revering the Constitution as an almost divinely inspired document. And I find it so interesting that many of the staunchest white Christian nationalists treat the Constitution and reading the Constitution like they treat the Bible. And so we have constitutional originalists. I'm not saying all of them are white Christian nationalists, but if you look at the hermeneutic, the seminary term for you know the rules of interpretation, they apply the same hermeneutic to the Constitution as they do the Bible, which is that you can't mess with it at all. As if the Constitution was perfect when it was first drafted, that the writers or the framers of the Constitution were uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, divinely inspired to write these words, just like they view the Bible. And I just think that's an interesting juxtaposition, uh, which gets to the idea that America is a Christian nation uh, as they as they mean it. Some other beliefs that characterize um, white Christian nationalism or or themes, I should say, there's a sense of aggrievement. There's a sense of embattlement. There's always the message that, hey, we are under attack. Our way of life is under attack. Christianity, as they understand it, is under attack by the secular liberal culture, by critical race theory, by anything that doesn't conform to their preconceived notions of how this country should operate and who it's for. We need to make a distinction here between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is a quite natural feeling of affinity toward the place where you live. Uh, it's wanting the best for the place that you live, but not necessarily uh, to the detriment of anyone else. Uh, black people, I will talk about, are very patriotic when, we, when you look at our participation in this nation. But white Christian nationalism goes beyond patriotism. It, again, conflates God and country, uh, as, if, as if the United States is God's precious little child. Uh, they put it almost on the a level of uh, Israel in the, the Hebrew Bible or the Old, right? That it's the apple of God's eye, that God has a unique place in the world for this nation over and above others, that we are blessed to the degree that we adhere to Christian principles and, and, and the, the, the people who most strongly adhere to something like white Christian nationalism basically believe in a theocracy. And that the fate of the nation or the fate of the church is tied up with the fate of the nation. But it's important for us to remember, Jesus said, I will build my church, not I will build this country. So other things that it's important to know about white Christian national uh, political and cultural beliefs. Um, there it was an American values survey that came out that says um, this. First, we continue to find, the data scientists, that Americans overall, by a margin of two to one, reject the idea 
that God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that would be an example to the rest of the world, so that it's a Christian nation. That was the question. And they looked at how people responded to that question. And they said two-thirds reject that idea that that this is a, a society that would be an example, a Christian example to the rest of the world. However, the report goes on, that still leaves nearly one-third of the country affirming this core tenet of white Christian nationalism. Report goes on to say, moreover, white Christian nationalist beliefs are now affirmed by half of Republicans and half of white evangelical Christians. Are all white evangelicals white Christian nationalists? No, but a very large proportion are. And there's something in that interaction between U.S. evangelical Christian beliefs and white Christian nationalism. White Christian nationalism nationalists are much more likely to agree with conspiracies like QAnon in one survey. Of those Americans who strongly embrace Christian nationalism, 73% agree with the QAnon conspiracy. They're also much more likely to subscribe to anti-Semitic views. They oppose gun control measures. They are anti-science, and so this is the rejection of the mask mandate and similar issues. They are in general anti-immigration, at least certain kinds of immigrants, um, Scandinavian versus S-hole countries, you might remember the former president saying. And they hold anti-democratic attitudes, favoring restricting the vote and denying the existence of voter suppression. So with all these beliefs that sound pretty unsavory, is Christian nationalism Christian? Well, it doesn't very much resemble the religion of Jesus. The goal of white Christian nationalism is not to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's to force the world to conform to its beliefs. The goal is not humility or the laying down of power but pride and power grabs. The ethic is not love of neighbor, but control of neighbor. And so in that sense, no, it's not very Christian at all. But yes, white Christian nationalism is Christian. Why? Because that's how its followers identify themselves. They call themselves Christians. We shouldn't get into the no true Scotsman fallacy that white Christian nationalists aren't true Christians and therefore they're not of us. Well, I get that impulse and I would love to say that, but that then abdicates responsibility of other Christians who believe differently to act in opposition to white Christian nationalists. It's actually just too easy. It lets us off the hook to just say that, well, they're not Christian. They're calling themselves Christian. They're going to church. They're reading their Bibles. They're singing Christian hymns. Because they're not practicing a Christianity that we like or recognize, we can't simply say they're not Christian. We have to work hard to present a better version of Christianity, to present a better walk that more closely imitates Jesus. And so 
Christianity is this permission structure that gives spiritual sanction to their ideology, and we can't simply dismiss it. I will say, however, if we want to get at a theological level, that white Christian nationalism is idolatry. Let's break this down. You want to call yourselves Christian? Okay. Well, let's hold it up to God's standard. White Christian nationalism repeats the folly of Sinai. In Exodus 32, it says, come make us gods who will go before us. Well, white Christian nationalism is a violation of the first commandment because that one says, you shall have no other gods besides me. What white Christian nationalism does is it makes earthly power and their own in-group their gods. They remake God into a white American, white nation under God. White Christian nationalism also violates the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Israel wanted a God they could see. White Christian nationalists want a power they can grab. Whether it's Supreme Court seats, governorships, the presidency. And they actually put a face to that God. They put a face to that Savior. For some, it would be Donald Trump. For others, it might be their local candidate. Who can promise, who can deliver God-like power? That's their idol. But what I think is perhaps subtler and very offensive is that white Christian nationalism also violates the third commandment. The third commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses God's name. Now, we tend to think that means not cursing or swearing and using God's name in an expletive, right? But that's just the lowest form. What it really is about is doing things that do not resemble the character of God and doing them in God's name. This commandment says not only should we not use God's name irreverently, but that we only use God's name in accord with God's teachings and the kingdom ethic. So white Christian nationalism profanes the name of God by using God's name in support of anti-Christian goals. It's, it's a hypocritical use of God's name, and it harms the witness of the church. That's why I say it's the greatest threat not only to democracy, but to the witness of the church. Think about it. Why are people leaving Christianity? Is it because in, 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 in their exit interview, they're, they're saying uh, Christians are too inclusive? Christians are too just, they're too righteous, they're, they're too open-minded, they want too much democracy. Is that why they're leaving? No, not at all. It's the opposite. Many people are seeing Christianity as narrow, exclusive, xenophobic, sexist, all of these things. And that's why they're leaving. They're saying, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. Because it's violating, it's doing things in God's name that do not resemble the character of God. There was an article I wrote at my Substack, and um, I paraphrased a quote from Frederick Douglass. He's talking about the difference between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, or 
slaveholder religion and and what Jesus truly stands for. So I paraphrased it and updated it uh, to apply to white Christian nationalism. I said, between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of white Christian nationalism, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as beneficial, inclusive, and democratic is of necessity to reject the other as dangerous, exclusionary, and authoritarian. Now that's the Jamar version. <laughs> it's not Frederick Douglass was was much more eloquent. So so far we have talked about a definition of white Christian nationalism. We've talked about how it shows up in terms of cultural artifacts, but also their beliefs. We've talked about how it is Christian in a sense because they're claiming Christian. Christianity, uh, but we also talked about how it violates um, Christian principles, especially several of the primary, uh, most important, or the, or the first commandments. What we should also realize about white Christian nationalism is that it's it's nothing new; it's been here. So, what I want to do in this next section is just talk a little bit about the history of white Christian nationalism. It goes back a long way, it, all the way back in the 1450s. Um, there's a book called Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles and Sung Chan Ra, and they talk about the role of the doctrine of discovery in colonialism, in imperialism in that era, in the, in, in the 15th century and beyond. Uh, there's a papal bull that came out in 1452 called Dum Diversus, and it was by Pope Nicholas V. And it initiated a doctrine that any new lands so-called discovered by Europeans could be rightfully taken over and its people could be enslaved. This idea of a divine sanction of going out, conquering lands, stealing them, extracting resources, and then in the case of uh, North and Central and South America, uh, devising race-based chattel slavery, that was all seen as part of this um, divine declaration uh, to go out and conquer and have dominion over the entire world. Moving on up into the 16th and 17th centuries in, in colonial North America, ideas of religion and race are mutually constitutive. You should also add ideas of religion and race and gender um, because patriarchy and sexism are also a part of this. But there's this idea that um, Christian is code for European which eventually becomes Christian is code for white, black or um, uh, brown skinned people. That's code for pagan. And if you're pagan, you can be enslaved. Didn't work out so well for Native Americans, but it worked really well in the case of uh, Africans being shipped off from the continent of Africa and brought to places in North America. And so uh, this, this coding of race and religion goes goes really far back. And this coding of who should rightfully have power in society, right? Because it's white men who can vote, white men who can own land, white Christian men, right? And women are excluded from this. Of course, people of African descent and Native American descent and anyone else is excluded from this. So this idea of who's a true American is already forming all the way back in the colonial era. Now we 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 move forward and uh the Civil War is about it's about fundamentally an economic system 
and maintaining the the economic exploit, exploitation of African labor to enrich the plantation and the owner class, but it's also about a certain order in society, a certain hierarchy that white Christian nationalists uh, believe is the divine order with black people and Native Americans and, and immigrants all outside of the main people who should be in control. And so who was a true American is already formulating and, and solidifying and cementing into this idea that it's a, it's a white Christian male. In this time, it was particularly Protestant, but it eventually opens up to Catholics and uh, mainliners as well. Here's a, one specific his historical example that shows us the signs and symbols of white Christian nationalism more than a century before we're talking about it. This is on Thanksgiving Day, 1915. It is the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. There had been a, a Klan that arose right after the Civil War in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, there was a third wave that, that came about in the 1960s um, in the Civil Rights Movement. But this second wave was birthed on Thanksgiving Day, 1915. It was a group of white men led by a white Methodist circuit writer, so a former preacher. Uh, his name was William J. Simmons. More on him in a moment. He led this group of white men up to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which has on it a big bass relief of Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Jefferson Davis, these so-called Confederate heroes. And then at the top of Stone Mountain, they did a couple of things. One, they burned a cross, which of course becomes a symbol of white racial terrorism. But they also built an altar. And on that altar, they put three items. They put an American flag, a Bible, and a sword. Flag, a Bible, and a sword. Think about what those symbols represent. Think about how those symbols represent white Christian nationalism. There's this conflation with uh, the flag and the Bible that, that, that the nation represented by the flag is God's chosen nation, an, a, a, almost kind of a new Israel, um, that, that it had to get back to uh, Judeo-Christian principles as these folks understood it, um, that, that through the symbolism of, of the Bible, it had a divine sanction and a divine order, and so they were on a holy mission, a new kind of crusade almost. And that is further cemented by the, by the presence of a sword there, which says what? That violence would be necessary in order to take back the nation for God, for the white man. And today, if you had a similar ceremony, you'd probably have similar symbols, a flag, a Bible. Instead of a sword, it might be an AR-15. We see those symbols represented tragically often, and especially at the January 6th insurrection, but they had a precursor long before that. And one more historical example. I told you we were going to come back to William J. Simmons, the founder of the second Ku Klux Klan. He puts it in stark terms who he thinks belongs as a true American. And this is from an interview in 1922 that showed up in the New York Times. This is what Simmons said. The Ku Klux Klan admits membership to none but native-born, white, Gentile, meaning not Jewish, 
Protestant Americans whose statement of principles was a restoration of the fundamental principles of American democracy as embodied in the Constitution of the United States, an organization whose code of conduct was Christianity. So let's break down that symbolism. White, native-born, not immigrants, white. Clearly, race is part of this. This is why I constantly refer to it as white Christian nationalism and not simply Christian nationalism, if I can help it. Gentile, Protestant Americans, again, there, there, there was very strong anti-Catholic bias throughout most of the 20th century. Uh, now, white Christian nationalism would admit membership, and, and Catholics are, are very prominent in, in some of the leadership or the most vocal voices of white Christian nationalism. And then he goes on to say this, this, this sort of um, holy nation, right? Um, they they want to restore fundamental principles of American democracy, really not democratic, it's authoritarian, because the only people they really wanted to vote were these white Gentile Protestant Americans, right? But then said embodied in the Constitution of the United States, whose code of conduct was Christianity. So they're saying Constitution is a Christian document. Which, in, which, which it was never intended to be, right? So right there, you got the founder of the Ku Klux Klan espousing white Christian nationalist idea. This is, this is bad, y'all. This is very bad. So just a couple more points. I am taking pains to say that white Christian nationalism is not the only witness to Christian engagement with faith and politics. Sweating under these lights. I'm going, I'm going hoard going hoard to explain this to y'all. The Black Christian tradition stands as an explicit tradition that arose specifically to combat or resist ideas of white Christian nationalism. It's resisting racism and white supremacy. It's resisting the suppression of civil rights and voting rights. And so, the history of the black Christian tradition is one of opposing white Christian nationalism. Now, of course, the black church does not get it all right. In fact, there's some glaring errors that's subject for some other podcast or conversation. But when it comes to resisting white Christian nationalism, it is one very clear example that there are other Christians who hold the faith very differently and therefore engage politics differently. A few examples will suffice. I love this quote by Charles H. Pierce. He lived in the 19th century. He was a black minister. He helped start the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in Florida. And he was also an outspoken political leader who was elected several times as a state senator uh, um, in, in that era. And so Charles H. Pierce said this, a man in this state cannot do his whole duty as a minister except if he but looks out for the political interests of his people. A man in this state, a person residing in in that case, Florida, but really anywhere in the United States, could not do their whole duty as a minister, except if they look out for the political interests of their people. So there's always been a political interest, a policy interest of Christian ministers, Christian leaders, Christians, and black Christians in general. Why? Because these political issues were matters of life and death. Race-based chattel slavery was legal. Jim Crow racial segregation was legal. 
Black people could legally be excluded from home ownership or living in certain neighborhoods or going to certain schools. So, of course, if you're going to minister to people who are oppressed in these ways, you are going to have to look at the laws that are oppressing them. And because these laws are oppressing them, naturally, when they resist it, it's going to lead to greater rights and more justice. Here's another example. Fannie Lou Hamer is one of my historical heroes. She was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta uh, in, in the Jim Crow era. She became an outspoken activist and a political actor as well. Um, she only had a third grade education, but she had a very savvy understanding of justice and of the way her faith applied to justice, even in the political realm. She would often refer to Acts chapter 17, verse 26, which says, God has made from one blood every nation of people to dwell on the face of the earth. And she's emphasizing the unity and equality of people. And she was instrumental in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in her famous testimony to the 1964 Democratic National Convention, where they are challenging the all-white delegation from Mississippi. She said, she ends her her harrowing um, account of being tortured in a Mississippi jail, she ends it and says, is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hooks because our lives be threatened daily, because we want to live as decent beings in America? You hear what she's saying? She's saying, is this the nation that in its founding documents espouses all of these lofty ideals. But the people who call this nation to live up to those ideals have to sleep with their telephones off the hook so they don't have to take the calls that, that, that threaten them with death. All because they want to live lives as decent human beings in America. Fannie Lou Hamer is just one example of black Christians who understood that because of their faith, they were to pursue justice and equity. Because of their faith, they were to pursue civil rights out of a, a love for neighbor, out of a sense of equality of all people, and, and no specific group should have more rights and privileges in an earthly nation than, than some other group. And they worked toward it. And, and this is not just historical. We have uh, representatives to this day. Chris Jones, who was running for governor in Arkansas, an ordained minister. Uh, Clementa Pickney, who, who, who was tragically murdered um, in the Emanuel AME shooting. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, uh, Latasha Brown of, of Black Voters Matter, Re Reverend Dr. Bernice King, the, the, the daughter of Martin Luther King. There's still a black Christian witness to a multiracial democracy in the pursuit of equal rights and civil rights for all. As I conclude, there are going to be several resources that you hear about again and again and again. I just want to give you an introduction to them. One of them is The Flag and the Cross by White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. That's by Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry. Full disclosure, I got to... Uh, write the foreword to this book. And I'm very, very pleased that I did. It's a really um, short book and, and extremely helpful for understanding the political dimensions of white Christian nationalism. Um, the next book is 
Taking America Back for God. Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, a fantastic overview overview by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, um, two sociologists as well as Philip Gorski. Uh, and it, it, it gives you just a, a landscape, and it's also really helpful for talking about the um, uh, spectrum of people who believe white Christian nationalism. They talk about uh, rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. So there's that one. Of course, Jesus and John Wayne is really helpful to understand sort of the cultural dimensions of white Christian nationalism. It's how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. For anybody who's like wondering how could 81% of white evangelicals, according to exit polls, support Donald Trump in the 2016 election, that's a great explanation. Um, it's an instant classic. And uh, here's another one, Race, Class, Religion, and the Trump Presidency, American Blind Spot. That's by Gerardo Marti. Um, and so all of these books can be found at my bookshop page. Uh, if you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash Jamar Tisby, bookshop.org slash shop slash Jamar Tisby. You can find all those books on sale there. And just a couple more resources. Um, I might've written a few books. <laughs> the Color of Compromise is going to be really helpful for understanding sort of the historical dimensions. I don't talk um, about white Christian nationalism in those terms, but the same sort of authoritarian, anti-democratic, racist, sexist impulses that's all through here as I talk about the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. If you want to know what to do, I've got two books, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, and the Young Reader's Edition of How to Fight Racism, great for kids ages eight and up. There's a couple of websites, uh, Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which Amanda Tyler will talk more about, but you can visit there right now. And of course, if you want to keep up with my latest work, go to jamartisby.substack.com. I want to end with this quote. This is from Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry in Taking America Back for God. And it says this, the United States cannot be both a truly multiracial democracy, a people of people, and a nation of nations, and a white Christian nation at the same time. This is why white Christian nationalism has become a serious threat to American democracy, perhaps the most serious threat it now faces. I would take that quote and go even further. White Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to democracy and to the Christian witness of the church in the United States today. White Christian nationalism is something we should know about, something we should recognize, but it's not something that should lead us to despair. By listening to this series, you are going to gain the information and the knowledge that we need to resist white Christian nationalism. And we need to resist it with all the energy and desire that we have to see a truly multiracial democracy and a church that looks, sounds, and acts more like Jesus. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Footnotes and the launch of this mini-series, White Nation Under God. It only gets better from here. 
We'll see you next time. America. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?